Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I am your host, as always, Kerry Parker, and we've got another news show for you this week. I've been trying to line up some interviews, uh, and things are kind of crazy right now, so it's kind of hard to get a hold of some people, like uh, the folks at EFF are just going crazy with all the stuff going on right now, and uh, several other people I've been reaching out to have just been tied up. So uh, hopefully we'll be getting some interviews for you soon, but uh, there's still plenty to talk about in the news, so... Uh, the, today we're going to talk about a few things. Uh, there was a massive personal data leak with over 1.2 billion records in it. Uh, that's like one out of seven people in the world. So, so we're going to talk about what happened there and what that might mean. Uh, Windows 10 had another failure. Uh, Windows 10 Defender, which is the antivirus program built into Windows 10, was broken by a recent update. Uh, there is a fix for it. It's a little bit weird hopefully microsoft will come out with a quick fix but in the meantime if you're having this problem i can tell you how to work around it there was also a, uh, an attack on linksys routers recently and i don't know that it was terribly widespread but um uh, i'm going to talk about it just kind of as, as an example of things that can happen and why uh, you should never expose your router admin functions to the broader internet then we're going to talk about a new and very disturbing trend with ransomware, as if it wasn't bad enough. Uh, there's a new ploy that they've uh, that we're deeming double extortion, uh, which sounds about as bad as it is. Uh, we're going to talk about what that is, and uh, we'll lead right into the tip of the week, uh, which is you know what you can do about it, and that is a lot of these things. Uh, a lot of people get infected through phishing uh, phishing scams, and so we're going to spend some time. Uh, at the end of the show, talking about how to spot phishing scams and avoid getting infected in the first place. So, lots to talk about. Let's get into it. All right, first up, I saw this on a, a CPO magazine. That's Chief Privacy Officer magazine. I'm sure that's one that's on all of your bookshelves. <laughs> um, but I ran across it on Twitter and it's a really good article and, um, very interesting. So it's actually kind of long, but there's a lot of really interesting points made in this article on kind of factoids and things that, um, I would like to bring your attention to. So if you don't mind, I'm going to actually just read you the whole article and then, you know, I'll stop here and there, or maybe at the end and I'll kind of touch base on some of the interesting points that are made here and why I think it's beyond just the particular incident, uh, why there's some relevant, uh, interesting kind of things mentioned in this article. So again, this is from cpomagazine.com. By now, everyone knows that databases of personal information are widely available for sale on the dark web. But now two security researchers, Bob Deschenko and Vinny Troya, have uncovered an incredibly massive database of more than 1.2 billion people exposed on the dark web. The size of this personal data leak far exceeds anything that has ever been available before. The exposed data includes 650 million unique email addresses, 420 million LinkedIn URLs, 1 billion Facebook URLs and IDs, and more than 400 million phone numbers. What's perhaps even more concerning from a security and privacy perspective is that nobody knows how the personal data leak occurred or why a server with this massive data trove was left unprotected. Anurag Kahol, CTO of BitGlass, highlights the size and scope of this data leak and quote, this unsecured database is one for the record books. Impacting 1.2 billion records, it's one of the largest leaks we have ever seen. Names, email addresses, and phone numbers, along with other social media profile information, were left public-facing. It is currently unknown who owns this database. However, there will surely face significant repercussions from regulatory bodies as well as the general public. There is no excuse for negligent security practice such as leaving databases exposed, unquote. 
While the size of this personal data leak is truly epic, it does not necessarily imply that, that a data breach at any company actually occurred. It might sound incredible, but much of this information is widely available on the public web, without the need for any logins, passwords, or sophisticated credentials. It appears that a hacker or a group of hackers simply scraped information from as many different public sources as possible, and then combined everything into a database. For example, the personal data leak included Facebook and LinkedIn URLs, Twitter account information, and GitHub URLs. All of this is widely available online for anyone willing to scrape all of these sites. And so I'll stop right there for my first kind of thing. So this is becoming more and more popular. We talked about this in a recent episode uh, about a data leak. And it's the fact that all this data is actually already out there. It's publicly available. If you look at property tax records, voting records, uh, social media, and all these other things, it's just a matter of someone taking the time to go out and find all this information and cobble it all together into one big massive database, which is what's going on here. All right, let me keep going. Since the personal data leak included email addresses, names, phone numbers, work histories, social media profiles, and other personally identifiable information, or PII as we like to call it, the two security researchers started analyzing the type of data that is scraped by legitimate firms known as data enrichment firms. These are basically data brokers that buy and sell data that have been scraped from as many different sources as possible. As best as the security researchers could tell, and as Troya noted, the trail appears to lead back to two of the most infamous data enrichment firms, People Data Labs, PDL, or Oxiodata.io. When the security researchers cross-checked the information found in these companies' databases with the information discovered as part of the personal data leak, there appears to be an almost perfect match with the PDL and Oxydata information. Yet that's where things get even stranger. Both firms deny that they have been attacked or that there has been any data breach of any kind. Moreover, since the firm hosting the server, Google Cloud Services, is under no legal obligation to disclose the identity of the owners of the server, the researchers don't even know who owned the server, if anyone accessed the data, or why the data seems to be an exact match with the datasets owned by the data enrichment firms. The best working hypothesis is that a current or former customer of PDL exposed the data as part of the personal data leak. This might have occurred for criminal nefarious purposes, or it might simply be the case of a misconfigured server that was simply never locked down for security purposes. Needless to say, the two security researchers informed law enforcement and the server is no longer available or operational. Javad Malik, security awareness advocate at No Before, comments on the scope of this personal data leak. Quote, this incident is less of a data leak and more of a full-on data tsunami. The biggest challenge when these kinds of repositories are found is that it's near impossible to accurately identify who the owner is. It could be a company that is legitimately recording data or a third party tasked with compiling profiles, a researcher, or a criminal, unquote. Some might say this is a lot of hullabaloo about nothing, or that it's simply a stunt pulled off by two security researchers looking to make a name for themselves. But that would be to overlook the significant privacy and security implications of this new personal data leak. For one, it raises questions about what any firm is doing holding such huge data sets of people. If names, account profiles, and contact information for hundreds of millions of people are widely available for sale online, doesn't that raise a lot of concern? With all of this enriched profile information, buyers of this data could use it for a range of nefarious purposes, ranging from phishing schemes to identity theft. The information obtained through, through the personal data leak could be used for business email compromise, or BEC schemes, or for credential stuffing attacks. At the end of the day, 1.2 billion is a huge number, equivalent to more than 1 in 7 people on the planet. And just real quick, a, a BEC scheme uh, is sort of a mail, an email fraud thing designed to extort or actually uh, transfer money incorrectly from one place to another, to steal money from a company. And credential stuffing attacks we talked about recently 
this is where bad guys get a hold of massive password databases and email you know, associated with email addresses and then use those credentials on as many different popular uh, websites as possible, banking websites, social media, email, etc. Uh, in other words, if, it's, uh, if they found that someone had used this password on one site and that, data, that database was breached, they then take those same credentials and try to use them in as many other places as possible because they know that people reuse passwords all the time. That's what we call credential stuffing. So back to the article. The second concern relates to firms such as PDL or Oxydata. Most people have never heard of these firms and may not even realize that, it, that there is such a vast online ecosystem of companies that simply scrape the internet for as much personal data as they can find and then turn around and sell it to the highest bidder. This vast gray economy is nearly unregulated and unsupervised. If you're not security researchers digging around in the dark web, you'd never even know where to look for these firms. And I'll stop there. Again, that is really part of the problem here is that this is all going on. There are hundreds, if not thousands of these data brokers in the U.S. alone that are doing all this data scraping and selling and buying and selling of your data. And uh, we don't even know about it. And now there was a recent Vermont law that was meant to kind of expose some of these things. If they want to operate in Vermont, they have to register and, and, and say who they are. Uh, and then the California Consumer Privacy Act doesn't really address that directly. But if you do know their names, which maybe the Vermont law will help you find, uh, you can demand that they um, give you their information and stop collecting it, yada, yada, yada. But generally speaking, we don't know these companies. We as average consumers and citizens don't know about any of these companies. I doubt that any of you ever heard those two names before, and yet they're two of the biggest names in data brokers. All right, last, uh, moving on. The third major concern involves breach notification. Technically, no data breach occurred, yet a lot of personal data information was exposed online as part of the personal data leak. Despite the involvement of law enforcement, it looks like nobody is taking responsibility for alerting 1.2 billion people that sensitive personal information about them has been leaked. For obvious reasons, nobody's stepping up and admitting guilt, wrongdoing, or lack of care and precaution. And there is no regulator able to step in and compel companies to do so. For example, will a European data privacy regulator step in and get involved due to the fact that the personal data leak almost assuredly involved personal information from European data subjects? Uh, and by, that's a reference to the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation that was put into effect in Europe last year. That was uh, really serious privacy laws that we in the United States do not have. Perhaps the biggest takeaway from this personal data leak is that everyone should realize that 360 degree profiles now exist on them online and that these profiles are widely traded, swapped and sold for profit by data brokers. Information from many different sources are being scraped and then stitched together almost as if a worldwide surveillance network were being put into place to keep watch over them. There's no almost there, by the way. It's This is happening. This is real. Tim Erland, VP of Product Management and Strategy at Tripwire, comments on the implications of this personal data leak. Quote, We often worry about the exposure of sensitive data, but in this connected world, it's the connections that matter most. Personal data that isn't exactly secret, or might even be public, takes on a new meaning when collected and connected. Repositories like these are concerning, not only because of the data they contain, but because as an industry, we don't really have a way to measure the impact of this type of exposure, unquote. Perhaps the only silver lining in this very dark cloud is that no payment card information seems to be included in the massive data set of 1.2 billion people and nearly 4 billion records. Going forward, the impetus will be on governments around the world to crack down on data enrichment companies, as well as the vast online ecosystem that they mine daily for personal profit. Okay, so long article. Thanks for hanging in there. So again, the real, I mean, the, the real takeaway for here again is that this is this is happening. This is real. This is this is going on right now. This is only one example. Uh, there are tons of data brokers out there that are that are trading and in your information constantly, 
And it's most of it is actually automated, honestly, because a lot of it's built in, baked in to this attention-based economy that's all based on serving advertising. So we have to realize that this is being done. We have to demand that our representatives do something about this because it's totally, totally out of hand. And then realize that how much this information could be used against us. I mean, if think about if you took all this information together, you know, all these things that I would suddenly know about you that seems like something that no one could possibly know and call your bank and say, you know, look, I can't get into my account. Can you help me change my password or... Uh, or whatever. And they say, well, prove to me that you are who you say you are. And then they ask you some questions that supposedly only you would know the answers to. And yet a lot of this stuff is public information. If you look at, like whenever you do like a credit thing online, they always ask you these knowledge-based questions. Um, And what they really are doing is going through your credit report and looking through places you used to live, accounts you used to have or currently have. They'll ask you maybe what your current monthly mortgage payment is, uh, some street you used to live on, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of this information is publicly available in tax records, social media, and so on. And that's what exactly what these guys are piecing together. All right, let's move on. So Windows has had a lot of trouble lately uh, with some of its updates. And uh, this latest update to Windows 10, Windows Defender, which is their built-in antivirus software, which is, by the way, very good. Um, what I usually recommend to people with Windows that they use. Uh, nevertheless, there was a problem with an update recently. And let me just read a little bit here from... Uh, this website called windowslatest.com, which I'd never heard of, but uh, let me read from this article. It looks like Microsoft broke Windows Defender on Windows 10 for the second time in this year. Windows Defender update, which has shipped earlier today, and this today would have been, I think, uh, last Friday for you guys, is causing, quote, threat service has stopped, restart now, unquote, error, and, quote, unexpected error, sorry, we ran into a problem, please try again, unquote. The bug prevents users from running Windows Defender scans, and failed scans could expose Windows 10 customers to security risks. And bugs like this could also erode trust in Windows Defender. Both full and quick virus scans don't work properly, with Windows Defender freezing or crashing during the scanning. It appears that the problem is caused by files with two dots in their name, and the error will disappear if you rename and delete the files. Okay, now it's going to... We're going to walk through the steps that they say to fix this. This is a little bit arcane, so you may or may not want to try this. But if you're having trouble with this and Windows doesn't push out an update soon, you might want to look into it. So here's the technique for fixing this. First of all, uh, in Windows 10, you can go to the search bar and you need to open Event Viewer. Probably something you don't ever use, but it is a tool that's available on Windows 10. And uh, this is will allow you basically kind of look at the logs for software on the windows and figure out where it died and then allow you to fix the problem. So if you open up, if you do that and open up event viewer, uh, on the left, you can navigate and you go to applications and services logs, Microsoft, windows, windows, defender, operational. Those are all subcategories. So you kind of keep opening triangles under these to expose more and more things. And eventually you work your way down to application and service logs, Microsoft, windows, windows, defender, operational. So you look in there for an error. You might find something that looks like crash exception code 0xc00005, something like that. And it includes the name of the file with two dots. So to resolve this issue, remove the extra dot and and or delete the file. Once you fix the file, uh, go to services and start Windows Defender and perform a quick scan, and that should resolve your problem. So the latest is that Microsoft knows about this and they're going to deliver an update, but who knows when that's going to come out. So again, if this, you know, the problem seems to be you have some sort of file in your system that has two dots in its name and that causes it to crash. Uh, And so if you use this technique that I just outlined, you can find those files, rename them or delete them, and then you should be able to pick up and go from there and everything should be fine. 
All right, next up, there was an attack recently on some Linksys routers. Uh, it, I don't think it affected a lot of people. I think it just talks about 1,200 counts, so that's very small considering probably the number of people that have Linksys routers. But uh, again, it brings up an interesting point. So I want to talk about it just in case it does affect you, and then we'll talk about really what it means for everybody. So this is the first of two articles today we're going to read from ThreatPost. Uh, from ThreatPost.com, it says, Home Linksys router users were targeted in a cyber attack that changed router settings and redirected requests for specific web pages and domains to malicious coronavirus-themed landing pages that were booby-trapped with malware. Researchers identified the attack last month, and earlier this week, Linksys hit reset on users of its Linksys smart Wi-Fi application to mitigate against future and past attacks. So this, I'll stop, this Linksys smart Wi-Fi thing, I had to look it up. I hadn't heard of it, um, but it's uh, it says it um, enables users to remotely dial into their home network from a browser or a mobile device by using a Linksys cloud account that could be accessed from outside the home network. So let me just stop right there because that's one of the big takeaways of the story is I don't know why anybody would allow administration of something as important as your router from outside your home. Part of the main protection of that router is that it doesn't allow bad guys in. It's like a one-way data valve. It's got a, it's, it's a firewall. It only allows certain requests to come in. In fact, most are usually blocked. Because if you think about it, when you're at your home, the way most internet traffic works from your home is that you send a request out of your house. Like you send a search to Google or, or open a web page on Amazon or go to Netflix and want to play a video. You have sent a request from inside your house, inside your home network, out of your home network, out onto the public internet, and then the response comes back. These routers are set up to allow that, to have a request go out and have the matching response come back without being blocked. But if there's an unsolicited request coming into your home network from, from the internet, that is almost always blocked. But for whatever reason, some some of these routers have a way for you to get to the router's administrative settings from outside your house which means that anybody on the entire planet on the internet could be poking at your router and trying to break that point of entry and attack you. And once they, if they attack your router, that's like compromising your security guard, your security guards. I mean, these are the guys keeping all the bad guys out. And, and so if they compromise that basically in this case, what they're doing is that when you send a request out, instead of sending you to the place you wanted to go, they reroute you to some other website um, that pops up some coronavirus thing that, you know, that might, they try to trick you into clicking on at that point, they're trying to infect you with malware. So anyway, point being, if you happen to have a router that allows this functionality, make sure it's turned off. All right, back to the article. Hackers gained access to at least 1200 Linksys smart Wi-Fi accounts via what is believed to be a credential stuffing attack. And there's that term again. The Linksys Smart Wi-Fi app is a password-protected web page that allows customers to easily manage their Wi-Fi and router settings. Once compromised, attackers manipulated the device's domain name system routing function, that's DNS, so victims would unintentionally visit malicious web pages. Uh, by the way, most of the people targeted this were, uh, were the United States and Germany. And then there's a quote here from this guy from Bitdefender says, The attack targets home routers and changes their DNS settings to redirect victims to a malware-serving website that delivers the OSCE info stealer as a final payload. Okay, now we're going to they're gonna start throwing out some terms here. These are basically security researchers give these kind of uh, malware schemes names. Uh, and so this is a particular kind of malware that they've called OSCE, O-S-K-I. According to a Linksys security bulletin on April 2nd, Smart Wi-Fi users were locked out of their accounts as mitigation efforts were kicked off by Linksys. 
Quote, out of an abundance of caution, we locked all Linksys smart Wi-Fi accounts to prevent further intrusions. Unfortunately, that means you have to change your password, unquote, according to Linksys. Researchers said the attacks began on March 18th, peaking around March 23rd. The attacks redirected requests to many domains, including Disney.com, RedditBlog.com, AWS, Amazon.com, Cox.net, and Washington.edu. When trying to reach one of those domains, users are actually redirected towards an IP address that displays a message purportedly from the World Health Organization, telling users to download and install an application that offers instructions and information about COVID-19. All right, so I'll stop there. So again, this goes along with some of the things I've been saying recently about, you know, whenever there's a really popular thing, either be it good or bad, in this case, very bad with COVID-19 and the coronavirus, bad guys are all over it. Uh, They know that people are full of anxiety. They know that people are worried. They know that they're looking for the latest information and they want to protect themselves and their families. So they use that fear and that anxiety to their advantage and try to trick you into doing something that you shouldn't in hopes of learning something about the coronavirus. All right, and that brings us to our second article today from ThreatPost, and our last uh, news article, and that'll lead into the uh, the tip of the week. And this is about double extortion ransomware attacks. All right, it reads, Victims of ransomware attacks now face a double whammy of headaches. Cybercriminals are increasingly inflicting more pain on ransomware victims by threatening to leak compromised data or use it in future spam attacks if ransom demands aren't met. And I guess I should stop real quick and cover this over. Ransomware is a type of malware that infects your computer and basically locks up all your files. It encrypts all of your files, or at least your important files. And then it says, hey, uh, if you want me to decrypt your files, if you want your data back, you've got to pay me money. Um, And in the past, the best defense against that was just to have back up all your data. If you've got a copy of all your important data, then you don't care, right? You can say, fine, keep my data. I'll just replace it. But now they're coming up with this new scheme that gives you yet another reason to pay them money that has that a backup will not help you with. So let me keep reading the article. Uh, and next is a quote from this guy named Latem Finkelstein uh, from a Checkpoint Research. Uh, he says, double extortion is a clear and growing ransomware attack trend. We saw a lot of this in Q1 of 2020. In this tactic, threat actors corner their victims even further by dripping sensitive information into the darkest places in the web to substantiate their ransomware demands, unquote. A November 2019 ransom attack against Allied Universal, a large American security staffing company, set the precedent for double extortion. After the company was hit by a maze ransomware attack, and that's just a a flavor of ransomware, and refused to cough up the 300 Bitcoin or $2.3 million ransom, the attackers threatened to use sensitive information extracted from Allied Universal systems, as well as stolen email and domain name certificates for a spam campaign impersonating Allied Universal. To prove the validity of the threat, the threat actors leaked 700 megabytes worth of data, which is only 10% of what the crooks took, uh, claimed to have stolen, including contacts, medical records, encryption certificates, and more, and published a new ransom demand that was 50% higher than the original. Now, researchers say that TA-2101, the group behind the maze ransomware, have since created a dedicated webpage that lists the identities of their non-cooperative victims and regularly publishes samples of the stolen data. And this is a quote from Finkelstein again. It says, quote, Mays has since published the details of dozens of companies, law firms, medical service providers, and insurance companies who have not given in to their demands. It is estimated that many other companies avoided publication of their sensitive data by paying the ransom demanded, unquote. Since this incident, Finkelstein said that the cybercriminal groups behind the Klopp, Nemty, Doppelpamer, and Sodin... Oh, God, I'm going to butcher this name. Sodinokibi? 
Ransomware, and these are uh, just funny names given to different strains of malware, have copied these efforts, opening their own sites to publish or leak stolen data in an effort to place additional pressure on the ransomware victims to pay up. For instance, attackers using the Sodino Kibi ransomware, also known as Revil, have created a happy blog where they recently published details of ransomware attacks on 13 targets, as well as company information stolen from the targeted organizations. That includes files for the National Eating Disorders Association, an organization that aids people with eating disorders, which was first infected by ransomware early in April. Similarly, the operators behind the Sodinokibi ransomware threatened to sell an entire database compromised from global currency exchange TravelX after a malware attack at the New Year knocked the company offline and crippled its business during the month of January. And it says here parenthetically that TravelX ended up paying out $2.3 million in Bitcoin. Researchers said that ransomware attacks will first publish screenshots of the information only to serve as a warning for victims that they need to pay their ransom on time. If the payment is not made in time, the attackers follow through on their threat and make the confidential files available on the web for public download. And another quote from Finkelstein says, quote, this puts targeted organizations in a double jeopardy trap. If they don't give in to the attacker's demands, the attackers will publish stolen data and the organization will have to report the breach to the relevant national or international data privacy watchdog, which could in turn levy a large fine on the organization. Either way, the organization is likely to have to pay to move forward, unquote. Research experts warn that double extortion attacks will continue to hit ransomware victims in 2020, particularly with more hospitals, which not only collect sensitive health-related data, but are also currently on the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic being targeted with cyber attacks. Researchers say that companies can protect themselves by following many of the best practices that initially prevented ransomware attacks, including backing up their data and files, educating employees, keeping signature-based protections up to date, which is antivirus software, and implementing multi-layered security protections. All right, that's the end of the article, uh, which leads directly into the tip of the week. And that is, you know, they say that, you know, you should basically follow best practices. Well, what are those best practices? So the key thing to realize here, and while a lot of these are targeting companies, because most of these companies have got the most to lose in terms of having private, you know, data for their customers that could be exposed, which would cause them all sorts of grief. This could really happen to anybody. Small business owners as well and medium business owners, probably because they don't have the security know-how and the security training to avoid things like this. And all it takes is one person in the company to screw up. So it's really important that we all understand these things. So again, this really applies to everybody. Um, uh, So we're going to go through this. There's a couple articles I looked into uh, for this. And uh, one was from the Federal Trade Commission at the U.S. And it's got some good kind of overviews here. So I'm going to talk, start with that one. And this starts off basically with what's the definition of phishing. And it says, scammers use email or text messages to trick you into giving them your personal information. They may try to steal your passwords, account numbers, or social security numbers. If they get that information, they could gain access to your email, bank, or other accounts. Scammers launch thousands of phishing attacks like these every day, and they're often successful. The FBI's Internet Crime Complaint Center reported that people lost $57 million to phishing schemes in one year. Honestly, I'm surprised it's not higher than that. That must be only individuals. I bet that's not companies, but we'll see. Anyway, scammers often update their tactics, but there are some signs that will help you recognize a phishing email or or a text message. Phishing emails and text messages may look like they're from a company you know or trust. They may look like they're from a bank, a credit card company, a social networking site, an online payment website, or an online store. Phishing emails and text messages often tell a story to trick you into clicking on a link or opening an attachment. They may say they've noticed some suspicious activity or a login attempt. They may claim there's a problem with your account or payment information. They may say you must confirm your personal information. They may send you a fake invoice. 
And I, by the way, I've seen that one happen a lot. Uh, and that's tricky, right? It's like a, just a quick email saying, okay, thanks for your purchase. Here's your invoice. And they might even mention like, you know, your thanks for your purchase of $345.25. You know, here's your invoice. You're like, wait a minute. I didn't spend that money on something. What, something's wrong here. Someone mischarged me for something. When in actuality, no such thing ever happened. But they trick you into opening an, uh, the attachment, which is infected. Okay, back to their list. Three more things. I said uh, they may want you to click on a link to make a payment. They may say you're eligible to register for a government refund. Uh, or they may offer you a coupon for free stuff. So let me stop right right here that uh, before I get to the next article uh, and just say that these are all things they could be doing and variations on these same themes. But if you ever get an email that looks really fishy, uh, a great place to start to see if it might be a known hoax or a scam is snopes.com, S-N-O-P-E-S.com. The easiest way to go to, to search for this is just to go to that website and search on some key piece of text from the email. Sometimes the, the, the email subject is usually the, a, a good way to go. Uh, or some other key piece of text that would probably be unique. If you search on that, a lot of times that'll bring it right up. All right. And now I usually try to quote the website that I got these from, but I forgot to write this one down. So I forget where I actually got these from. But these are seven basic tips uh, that another website had for kind of recognizing scam emails. And I'm going to add some of my own commentary here as we go. Number one, legit companies don't request your sensitive information via email. Chances are, if you've received an unsolicited email from an institution that provides a link or attachment and asks you to provide sensitive information, it's a scam. Most companies will not send you an email asking for passwords, credit card information, credit scores, or tax numbers, nor will they send you a link from which you need to log in. Now, I'll stop there. That's that's kind of a strong statement. I've certainly gotten legitimate emails from companies that say... Here's a link that you need to click to do something. Uh, here's a response to a post you had. Here's a response to your request for service. Here's uh, a link to a new deal we're offering. Uh, I have seen those. But it is true that uh, companies will generally not send you emails asking directly for personal information, for you to provide you know, login information or credit card numbers or anything like that directly from an email. Usually they'll direct you to log into the website directly and find uh, the message there or find a warning there or to call their publicly available number. And you can always check to make sure that's the real number for that company. So basically the, the, the advice there is if you do get in such an email and you're worried that it may be true, then instead of clicking on anything or using any information in the email itself, go to that company's website and either find their number and call them directly, log into your account and look and see if there's any kind of notification messages, uh, that sort of thing. And don't trust any of the numbers or links that are included in the email. All right. Number two, legit companies usually call you by your name. Phishing emails typically use generic salutations such as Dear Valued Member or Dear Account Holder or Dear Customer, but some hackers simply avoid the salutation altogether. This is especially common with advertisements. The phishing email below, and of course it's a picture you can't see, uh, says is an excellent example. And it was. It was just a really good-looking email about, hey, you've got a special discount on this, click here to get it, with offer code so-and-so. I mean, you know, we get these things all the time. But they avoid saying, you know, Dear Carrie, uh, just jump straight to the advertisement. So, you know, that gives you one less thing maybe to spot as fishy. But it's also important to realize that so if they don't use your name, if they do use a generic salutation and it's from a company that should know your name, like you have an account with them, like your bank or, or Facebook or whatever, they know your name and, and Apple, Amazon, right? So if they start off with Dear Valued Customer or sometimes they'll try to use the email address, like let's say your email address is... Joe Bob 125 at yahoo.com. So they might start off with dear Joe Bob 125. Well, that's obvious. It came from your email address. 
Uh, but also realize that sometimes uh, email addresses have your full name in them. So if you were joe.smith at gmail.com, that's your email address. So it shouldn't be surprising if they say, Dear Joe. But it's also, also just because it does use your name doesn't mean it's legit. Um, sometimes in data breaches, they not only get your email address, they get your full name. Uh, or if they've hacked some, some other person you know and they've raided their contact list, uh, their address book. Well, their address book is not only going to have your name; it's going to have your or your not only going to have your email address; it's going to have your full name too. So, it's it just because it goes one way doesn't mean it goes the other way. So, if it doesn't have your name, if if it if it uses some generic salutation, that's fishy. But if it uses your real name, that doesn't necessarily mean it's legit. All right, number three: legit companies have domain emails. Don't just check the name of the person sending the email. Check the email address by hovering over your mouse over the from address. Or sometimes you can click a little thing for more details to see the full address. Make sure no alterations, like additional numbers or letters, have been made to the domain name, basically. Check out the difference between the two email addresses as an example of altered mails. Michelle at PayPal.com and Michelle at PayPal23.com. Just remember this isn't a foolproof method. Sometimes companies make use of unique or varied domains to send emails, and some smaller companies use third-party email providers. So again, it's basically to say, make sure that the email address actually says, you know, paypal.com, not paypal23.com, or it really does say ebay.com, not ebay.somethingelse.com. Uh, those are common things. So those are, those are things that might tip you off that are wrong, but again, it's not foolproof. And the other thing to realize is that uh, it's not that hard, actually, to spoof the from address. They could actually say it's from apple.com, some email address at apple.com. And maybe it's like no reply at apple.com, right? So you, you, you're kind of given the clue there that even if you reply to that email, you shouldn't expect a response, but they've faked that from, they don't expect you to respond to that email. They want you to click a link. So the, in order to get you to bite in the scam, it doesn't require you to reply to the email. Therefore the from address doesn't even need to be legit. Number four, legit companies know how to spell. This is a good one. Possibly the easiest way to recognize a scammy email is bad grammar. An email from a legitimate organization should be well-written. Little known fact, there's actually a purpose behind bad syntax. Hackers generally aren't stupid. They prey on the uneducated, believing them to be less observant and thus easier targets. Now, I think that's kind of bogus. What I would say, actually, a lot of times is some of these things uh, originate from non-English speaking countries. Uh, or non-English speaking hackers. Uh, and so their attempts to generate a plausible English email ends up resulting in bad grammar or odd syntax, bad spelling, that sort of thing. And one other interesting thing to note is a lot of times these bad guys actually misspell things on purpose, or sometimes they even get really clever and they will use a different alphabet, like say the Greek alphabet or the uh, Cyrillic alphabet, which happens to have characters in the alphabet that look like English characters enough that you would probably read right over it and not notice it. For example, the Greek alpha would look like a lowercase a. And the reason they do this is because a lot of spam blockers, automated systems that are trying to catch and spam and put it in your junk folder before you ever even see it, are looking for keywords uh, and phrases, but they do it using the English version of those phrases. So when they're searching and they don't find it, then they let it through and then you see it and then you're, uh, you're trapped into thinking it was uh, a real email instead of a junk email. All right, number five, legit companies don't force you to their website. Some phishing emails are coded entirely as a hyperlink. Therefore, clicking accidentally or deliberately anywhere in the email will open up a fake web page or download spam onto your computer. And that's true. And I've seen that sometimes. And basically, you can basically set up, because a lot of our email is actually in HTML format, which is the format of the web. So they can do fancy things like images and links and nice fonts and all that kind of stuff. But you can actually set up the entire web page 
such that if you clicked anywhere, it, it's basically like clicking some link. And if you did this accidentally, and then you all of a sudden are routed to some other web page, or it prompts you to download something, you just should immediately close those and uh, delete that email. Uh, number six, legit companies don't send unsolicited attachments. Unsolicited emails that contain attachment reek of hackers. Typically, authentic institutions don't randomly send you emails with attachments, but instead direct you, direct you to download documents or files from their own website. Like the tips above, this method isn't foolproof. Sometimes companies that already have your email will send you information, such as a white paper, that may require a download. In that case, be on the lookout for high-risk attachment types that include .exe, .scr, and .zip. When in doubt, contact the company directly using contact information obtained from their actual website. And again, this is mostly true. Uh, it's not that you'll never get an attachment from a company. The key in a lot of these things is unsolicited. So if you ask someone to send you a copy of a bill or an invoice or something like that, well, then you should expect that. But if you get an email out of nowhere with an invoice attached that you never asked for, that's where you might want to be suspicious. And finally, number seven, legit company links match legit, legitimate URLs. A URL is a universal resource locator or basically a fancy name for a web address. Just because a link says it's going to send you to one place doesn't mean it's going to. Double check the URL. If the link in the text isn't identical to the URL displayed as the cursor hovers over the link, then it's a sure sign you will be taken to a site you don't want to visit. If a hyperlink's URL doesn't seem correct or doesn't match the context of the email, don't trust it. Ensure additional security by hovering your mouse over the embedded links without clicking and ensure that the link begins with HTTPS. So this, this one can be a little bit tricky, but basically the, the idea is if you take your mouse and hover over a link, and this happens on a web page or pretty much anywhere, if you hover over the link, usually there's a little status area, either it's right under your mouse pointer, or sometimes it's kind of like at the bottom or the lower left. And as you hover over links, it shows you the address, like whether that link is, if you click that link, what you're really clicking on. And very often in these scam cases, what what the text actually says in the email, and it looks like a link, when you hover over it, the actual link is something else entirely. That's a big red flag. However, I will tell you that it is possible to fake those links. <laughs> so, you know, even if the link looks legit, like it's, you know, HTTPS colon slash slash PayPal.com slash something, there are tricky ways to, even when you hover your mouse over that, to, to make it look like that's what it is when it's really something else. So generally speaking, the, if you get a link or a button that tells you to click on something, uh, just don't. Uh, if at all possible, just go to the actual website itself and try to find that same thing there. Or if it's a, you know, something you think you need to download and some really weird URL, you just you know go to the uh, go to that company's website, call them directly, or contact them directly through some official channel through their website to try to get that same information that way. So a couple other points I want to make here, uh, and that is that using a password manager like LastPass or 1Password or some of these other ones is a good protection in a lot of these cases. Because even if you did accidentally click a link, like thinking it really was a, a, a real legit Apple link or a PayPal link or eBay link or Amazon link or Bank of America link or whatever, if you click it and bring up the web page and, and they have a really legit looking web page there, um, if you have an account for that site, but your password manager is not offering to fill in the password for that site, that it's probably not the real site. In other words, your password manager is only going to offer to fill in the passwords on the legitimate site. That means that it's the exact host name associated with your account. So it's definitely paypal.com and not paypal23.com, for example. Because if you went to paypal23.com and you have a PayPal account, but your password manager 
doesn't know how to fill in a password for that, for that, then that's a big tip that paypal23.com is not legit. There's one more little paragraph on this uh, page I want to read. It says, it doesn't matter if you have the most secure security system in the world. It takes only one untrained employee to be fooled by a phishing attack and give away the data you've worked so hard to protect. Make sure both you and your employees understand these specific email phishing examples and all the telltale signs of a phishing attempt. So yes, education is everything. And the sad fact is for, you know, for all the things we try to do, it only takes one screw up to bring everything down. So I know, no pressure, right? So uh, education is the main thing. You know, be cautious, be skeptical. And when in doubt, you know, just bypass the email directly, go directly to the website in question and log in directly there or call them using the phone number published on their uh, on their website. Or if it's, you know, some coupon or something, just blow it off and delete it. All right, everybody, that's going to do it this week. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, be sure to subscribe. That way you don't miss any episodes. There's lots of stuff going on now. There's lots of things to be aware of, and I'm going to try to make sure uh, I keep you aware of all the things you need to to keep you and your loved ones safe. So if you subscribe, you're guaranteed to get them. Uh, same goes for the newsletter uh, and the blog. If you, uh, My blog comes out every couple of weeks. Uh, and I've covered a lot of these kind of things there too. And the kind of nice thing with the blog, of course, is that it's going to have pictures and, and, and links to other articles and things that are more informative. Um, so if you can check out the blog and, and you can look at past things there, uh, if you sign up for the newsletter, that you'll get those same things delivered to your email box uh, automatically every two weeks. And of course, that's at firewallsdontstopdragons.com. And on that site, you'll also find other things. I've got several other resources there you can look at that are good. Other websites, other books. Movies, documentaries, all sorts of good stuff, depending on, you know, depending on how you like to learn. There's plenty of options there to, to learn more about security and privacy. You can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Firewall Dragons. And you can find my book at apress.com or, of course, amazon.com. One more reminder, the Flatten the Curve Summit uh, is next week. It's at flattenthecurve.tech.tec. Uh, they've got some really good speakers, including some folks that I've interviewed on this show before. Corey Doctorow and Sean O'Brien, uh, two of them. It's free or cheap. Uh, they're looking for some donations, however, so it's basically pay what you want. And it's three days of, of, uh, three days of lectures, uh, online lectures. And you can listen to whatever you want. Skip the ones you don't. That'll wrap it up for this week. Stay safe, everybody. Stay home. Let's get through this. We will somehow come out the other side of this. Things will probably not be... Never, we'll never be back to where we were, but hopefully we'll be back to some sense of normal here not too much longer. But the key to that is stopping this virus, and that means staying home and staying away from each other, unfortunately. So stay safe, stay home, stay healthy, and as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>